Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Hans. I'm just trying to change the view to see everyone. Uh, if uh, if you are uh, here online, thanks, Jen, for the wave. I would love to see your smiling face. And one of the things I'm going to do, as I did a couple of weeks ago, is just going to ask some questions. So there may be a there will be a chance for you to give a thumbs up sometimes or wave or even put something in the chat as we're as we're coming up but how about i pray as uh, we look at this passage let's pray father god as we look at uh both chapters joshua 2 and 6 i pray that you would speak to us through it i i pray that uh the the troubling aspects of, of these passages, you would help us to see um, your, your intention behind them, your goodness behind them. And so, Lord, Lord, I also pray that as we see your grace shown in, this, in these two chapters, that you would encourage us, um, no matter where we're at with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I just want everyone to give a thumbs up if... if Last year on Netflix, you watched the documentary The Last Dance. Did anyone did anyone watch that? Yep. So Steve Sheriff did because he's a basketball nut like me. The Last Dance is all about Michael Jordan and uh, his uh, time with the Chicago Bulls, especially the last three years. And what was very interesting was a, a lot of people's reaction to to the documentary. You see. A lot of people only saw Michael Jordan play basketball or on uh, Space Jam or in the, you know, in the ads that, that he, would, he would be in. And so they had a perception of Michael Jordan that the documentary really kind of brought in another aspect because the documentary actually interviewed him, but he interviewed his teammates. And what you saw was the very dark side of Michael Jordan's competitiveness. You saw him bullying his uh, teammates. And I think admitting almost that he would do that because he wanted to win. At one point in, in the documentary, he said, look, you know, he basically said, look, my, I did all these things. I, I pushed, I, I was mean, I was nasty, but we won and they won too. And it was almost this, this way of justifying what he did to win. There was this different side of Michael Jordan, different from the guy smiling on Space Jam and all the ads. And when we come to God, a lot of us have got a picture of God in our heads, a, a loving God, a kind God. And maybe we've got those picture, that picture of God in our heads because we have, uh, that's the God that we have kind of imagined. Or maybe we have been in a church or something that, that has really emphasized that part of the, that aspect of God without showing other aspects of God. Or maybe it's just because we've got favorite Bible verses. Maybe it's the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 or Psalm 23, where, where God is this caring shepherd or, or John 3, 16. And we've got this beautiful picture of God. And yet, then we read Joshua 6, 21, where it says, they, that is the Israelites, devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men, 
and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And, and we read at the start of Joshua chapter 6 th that God was giving Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. And, and so it's not like the Israelites were doing something that God didn't want them to do. And so it seems like God is behind this. A lot of people would say that this is genocide, that God is putting Israelites into Canaan to wipe out a whole people group. And so how are we meant to think about this? So many people would look at Joshua uh, chapters 2 and chapter 6, in fact, the, the whole book, and would just rip it out of their Bibles and go, this is not the God of the Bible. But we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, so we can't do that. What we've got to do is go back and, and look at the, these passages and, and see what God is actually saying and see what is saying and not saying. The Bible actually never says that we should just focus on the really nice aspects of God. In fact, in uh, Romans 11, it, 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 Paul encourages us to consider both the kindness and the severity of God, both the kindness and the severity of God. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at jo Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6, and we're going to see the kindness and the severity of God. Only two points today, the kindness and severity of God. I know there's usually three. I hope you don't feel disappointed by only two, but we're going to look at this passage through the kindness and the severity of God. Let's have a look at the kindness of God here. And, and let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go over and look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. But it's interesting that the first place they go to is to this lady's place named Rahab, and she is a prostitute. Now, I, I hope it goes without saying that this woman is in actually... Uh, a, a really massively underprivileged position. No little girl grows up and thinks one day when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. This is a, a, a really terrible position for her to be in. Around this time, the land of Canaan was a very, very poor place a very poor place, oppressed by Egypt, ancient Egypt. And one of the things that, um, that poor families did sometimes, they would sell their children into slavery if they were in debt. And so I dare say that's probably what's happened to Rahab here. She's, been for, she's probably been forced into this. And now she is hearing of the, these Israelites who have, who have won some battles. And two men come into her, um, into her, her place. And she starts talking with them. And they're from these Israelites. 
And so, what happens? Well, have a look in verse 4. No, sorry, verse 2, actually. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the land. Now, have a look in verse 2, uh, sorry, verse 1, that Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent spies to, to Jericho. And then in verse 2, the king of Jericho or the ruler of Jericho already knows these spies aren't great spies. They are not James Bond. They are not uh, Jason Bourne. They are more like Johnny English spies. They're, they're very bad spies. And yeah, what does she do? Verse four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the, the city gate, they left. I do not know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. What does she do? She actually lies. She, she hides. Uh, you, you know, can you imagine the stress she's under as she is hiding the spies? And she lies to the king. She lies. Now, the Bible never, ever critiques this lie. The Bible never says it's good, never says it's bad. It is only mentioned here. And uh, I've read a bunch of stuff this week, and there's so many arguments as to why it was the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Here's the thing. I'm not going to comment whether it's right or wrong you guys who go to growth groups you can actually figure it out there because because the point of this passage is not her deception but her confession the the point of this passage is not her deception but her confession have a look at verse 8 for her confession before the spies lay down for the night, she went up onto the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear for you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you uh, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. This is, she is confessing basically her faith in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. Now, one of the things that, that you've got to realize is that the Bible um, has two, uh, two words for God. Uh, uh, two words for God, and there's derivatives of this, but basically the two words for God are Yahweh or El. The word El is, is the name that a lot of people in the ancient Near East would call God. A, a lot like today, we would say, oh, which God do you believe in? You know, we, you know, we would, uh, people would say, uh, you know, Muslims and Christians believe in God, you know, such and such. It's just a general word for God. But when the Bible uses, the Old Testament uses the word Lord, it's actually the word Yahweh. 
And when it's put on the lips of someone, they are usually confessing their faith in Yahweh. And that's exactly what's happening here. Do you notice how she talks about in our English translations in verse 9, and said to them, I know that the Lord, that is Yahweh, has given you. And if, if you keep going, verse 10, and how the Lord or Yahweh uh, dried up the water of the Red Sea. Verse 11 when we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She's saying that there is one God. And that, that confession at the end of verse 11, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below, is kind of um, echoed. It's an echo of other parts in the Old Testament. And, and when that echo... Uh, those passages that are echoed um, either are coming from places where it, it says you can only worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible, or it's coming from a place where it's saying that, that the gods of, of Cain and the gods of the ancient world, they're not really gods. The God of the Bible is the true and living God. And so here she is basically saying, turning her back on all the Canaanite gods and saying she trusts in God, the God of the Bible. She has heard of what God has done in, in defeating Egypt, in defeating these, these kings east of the Jordan. She may have heard something about um, the, the Israelites, God, and what they're going to do, how he's coming into Canaan with, with his, his nation. And yet God sparks faith in her and what we see in the rest of the chapter is she makes this she kind of bargains she, she's absolutely in control she makes an agreement that she is going to spare the lives of the uh of of the spies she's not going to tell anyone and she says but make sure you're kind to my family and they say yes we're going to spare your life if you do these things, she's absolutely all the way in control in the passage. And in chapter six, she, she comes up again as, as the Israelites come in to come around Jericho. But did you notice what is emphasized? There's two things that are emphasized. First of all, her work is emphasized. Have a look at verse 17 of chapter six. Verse 17 of chapter 6. The city and all its in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared. So have a look at verse 22 with me. Joshua said to the two men who spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out. Verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute. It's almost like there's an emphasis on her job. But then her salvation also is highlighted. Have a look at verse 22 again with me. Joshua said to the two men who spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong her in accordance with her oath to her. Your oath to her, sorry. And then in verse 23, it's emphasized again. So the young man who had done, who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belong to her. It's kind of like um, it's saying, I told you to go in and, and save her. And yes, she was. And then you have a look at verse 
25, once again, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute. Why is there's an emphasis? Why is there an emphasis on her work, but also an emphasis on her salvation? I think it is. It emphasizes God's grace and God's kindness to her. God's grace and God's kindness to her that even, even a Canaanite prostitute can be saved, can be forgiven, can be brought in to the people of God. And in fact, this is not the last we hear of Rahab. If you go to Matthew 1 verse 5, uh, Matthew puts her in the genealogy of Jesus. She's actually the great-grandmother of King David and the many great-grandmother of Jesus. In Hebrews 11 verse 31, she's considered a woman of great faith. In James 2 uh, chapter 2 verse 25, she's considered righteous because of how she helped the spies. See, the beauty of God's grace comes into her life. And through God's grace alone, Rahab goes from the, a Canaanite house of shame to the Bible's hall of fame through God's grace alone. Here's the beauty. God forgives. I'm not sure what you have done. I'm not sure what you are currently doing. But God is a, a gracious God who graciously forgives. He, he sent his son to die in your place, which, which secures your forgiveness. And, and once again, if God can forgive a Canaanite prostitute for her sins, of course he can forgive yours. One of the things about the Bible is it's, it's littered all the way through with people who do terrible things and yet find the grace and forgiveness of God. And so today, it will be the wrong thing to think that your sin is too big for God's grace. In fact, it will be the wrong thing to think of that any day. Because God's grace is far more powerful than your sin. His forgiveness is far more, uh, far more powerful than your sin. When, what, what God does with your sin is he throws it into the deepest sea and marks that spot where he's throwing it, no fishing. He's not going to bring it back. You are forgiven. But, but also, God is a God who graciously forgives and can use you in the future, no matter what your, your past is full of. I remember meeting a, a girl a number of years ago, actually, now, and uh, she wanted to be a missionary, actually. She was uh, um, going around to churches talking about how, um, where she was going as a missionary and all this kind of stuff when I met her. And... Um, one person asked her, what was the biggest thing that she had to overcome in becoming a missionary? And she talked about um, all the things that she had done both before she became a Christian and when she was a Christian. And she said when she thought about all those things, she was like, okay, I can't be a missionary because of all these things. And one time after church, she was actually talking uh, to a lady 
and uh, and she mentioned that she she wants to be a missionary but she can't because of all these things and this lady took her to Rahab and, and showed her that God had forgiven her in 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 Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6 and that the new testament says that God did great things through her despite her past and this revolutionized her life in fact one of the things that she did to remind her of God's grace she went to the pound and uh, she found a girl dog that was uh, ready to be destroyed because no one liked her and no, no one wanted her. And so she bought this dog, bought a home and called her Rahab. So she's got this kind of mangy mutt that no one wanted, called her Rahab to remind her that God is a God of grace, that God wants the unlovable, that God loves the unlovable. And that no matter what she has done in her past, her future, in her future, God can be used. What about you? I wonder if there are people here today that are so kind of enamored with their, with their past or current fa failings that they haven't gripped onto God's amazing grace. I wonder if you're doubting whether God can work through you because of what you've done in the past. Can I just say, if you are thinking that you're wrong, you're wrong. God's grace is so amazing that he forgives our sin and uses us to do amazing things. The New Testament's uh, mention of Rahab shows that with God, your past is not your future. Your biography is not your destiny. Your past sin isn't stronger than God's grace. And that your past sin is not a factor in whether God can use you in your future. The factor is whether you are trusting in the God of, your, of all grace or you are just mainly focusing on your own sin. That's the question. God was absolutely kind to, to Rahab and gracious towards her. But let's look at the other aspect that, of God that this passage brings up, the severity, the severity of God. Flip over to Joshua chapter 6 again if you, if you haven't got it. Uh, but, but this is a, a troubling passage. There's so many uh, questions that come up as we read this passage, but we're only, I'm going to focus on, um, I guess, the moral or ethical question. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, Jericho is securely barred because of these rights, and yet what does God do? Have a look at verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven, excuse me, have seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns in, the, uh, in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone will go straight in. Now, I wonder if you saw there was one word repeated over and over again, which kind of gives, gives us a, a picture of what's actually really happening here. 
It's the word seven. And in the Bible, the word seven is the number of perfection. So you see, you know, seven people carrying the ark. You've got seven uh, priests with trumpets. You've got seven marches around the city on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath. They, they go in and attack the city. It, it, it looks here not of a military procession, but a religious one. And what that is meant to do is to show us that actually it is God who delivers um, Jericho into the hands of the Israelites, just as he said in verse 2. It, it is not the, the might of these Israelites coming in, but it's the might of God. He is the one that destroys the wall and they all go in. And so what do they do? For, for, for six days, they walk around the, the, um, the city of Jericho or the town of Jericho. It's actually just a really a, a little village at this point. Uh, and, and yet, on the seventh day, they go in. Have a look at verse 20 with me. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpets, when the men gave a, a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that everyone charged straight in. And they took the city. They devoted to the, the city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Everything. Now, now as I said, Jericho is probably a, uh, probably not a, a great bustling city like we, you know, we've seen on uh, some pictures in Sunday school. It's probably a little village. But that doesn't mean that, that this is less horrible. That everyone is killed. And it seems like it's genocide, don't you think, on one level? How could a loving God say that this is right and okay? Has any, just, just give me a hands up if you've ever thought that. How could a loving God say this is okay? I think so many of us have. How are we meant to unpack this? How are we meant to think about this? Well, the, the first thing is this. We, we've got to realize that, that the Canaanite people weren't this innocent group of people. They weren't this nice and loving, uh, amazing group of people. Don't think of the Canaanites as a bunch of, of uh, you know, people who only think about other people who are generous, who are, who are beautiful people. Because both uh, the evidence inside the Bible and outside says that's actually just not the case at all. If you've got your Bibles there or if you've got it on your phone, can you flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 4 deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 4 it's just um one book back so there's deuteronomy then joshua so deuteronomy uh deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 4 i'll just let you get that this kind of gives a picture of, of what what the canaanites were really like and what god is actually doing in the midst of of uh sending israel israel into canaan deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 4 have a look at it with me. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, that is them, the Canaanites, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness, 
No, it's not on the account. It, it, no, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession on the land of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. What, what is happening here, God is sending Israel in to the land to punish the Canaanites. And, and before you get, before we go, man, like that seems to be like God's really um, pro-Israel and, and, you know, negative to the Canaanites. Well, he is to a certain extent. Israel is his people. But later on in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God will use other nations, Assyria, to, like Assyria, to judge Israel and to come in and defeat and destroy Israel and to take them off into exile. So God is not partial here. What he does is he punishes wickedness. See, we have got evidence both inside and outside of the Bible that the inhabitants of Canaan practice things like child sacrifice. Well, it, we've got the religious texts that the Canaanites used and their, um, their gods practiced, as I said, child sacrifice, incest, murder, and other terrible things. The gods of the Canaanites practiced a certain way and to, in today's era, but also back then, it doesn't really matter. The God you worshipped is the God you patterned your life on or the gods you worshipped. And so the Canaanites were not a, a nice people, but a wicked people. And so what we see here in, in Jericho and in the rest of the book of Joshua, it's not genocide. It's judgment. It is not genocide. It is judgment from a holy God. See, the thing is, we want to act. We want God to act and deal with evil. So, so we will say stuff like, hey, God, how can you, um, you know, put up with so much evil and suffering in the world? We think of ISIS or we think of so many different things. And yet, here is God dealing with evil. An evil and wicked, uh, you know, system. An evil and wicked group of people. God deals with evil, but sometimes He does that in uh, in ways that make us feel feel so so uncomfortable. But why do we feel uncomfortable? I remember talking about um, the judgment of God and and how God you know brings nations. Israel to punish nations and nations to punish Israel and wars and, and, and all this kind of stuff in a, in, in a talk once a few years ago. And there was a, a friend of mine, he was a member of this church, Azazi, and he's uh, now at uh, doing a PhD at University of Western Sydney, and he's gone out there. And as I was talking, and as I was kind of trying to help people see why, uh, why a holy God would do, um, would, would do that kind of judgment that we see here in, in, in Joshua chapter 6, um, Azazi kind of laughed. He kind of smiled, like, like up the back. 
and I grabbed him after church and I, and I said, mate, look, you know, I saw you smiling. And I, like, what was there something that you, that you think he was no? And he said, no, I was laughing at what you said. And I said, what are we laughing at? He, I can't. he said, I was laughing that you were defending God doing that. And I said, I said, why were you laughing? And he said, oh, because, because you're so white. And I was like, I'm white? Yeah, okay, I, I'm white, I get it. But like, how does that, how does that relate to, to what I was talking about? And he said, if, if you had seen what my countrymen had seen, if you had heard of groups of people coming in and slaughtering whole villages, if, if you had heard of the terrorism that happens. You wouldn't have a problem with God sending an army to kill an evil group of people. The only reason that you feel the need to defend it is because you're so white and you're so Western. And I think there's a sense in which he's right. The reason why we struggle with this is because we've lived very, very comfortable lives. We haven't had an invading army come into Sydney and, and, and destroy Sydney and kill a bunch of people. Now, evil is something we see on TV, something we see out there. And yet, if that was different... We may be crying out for God to act and act maybe even in violent ways. And just think about Rahab. Here's a woman who has been forced into prostitution, probably, probably forced into prostitution. I don't think Rahab would have been shedding tears as the people who oppressed her and forced her into that line of work may have been killed in front of her. Oh, then actually there might have been tears. The tears of anger and tears of relief. But but here's the thing, it would be the wrong thing to do to 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 look to think about the Canaanites and the evil there and, and just think of evil out there. Because actually evil is not this big ugly thing. The problem is evil is far more boring than we think. I read a book a, a number of years ago by Hannah Arendt, and uh, she was a reporter who covered the trial of Adolf Eichmann in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi who engineered the system which allowed, it was a very efficient system which allowed the killing of millions of, of Jews. And when Adolf Eichmann came out on the first day of his trial, so many people gasped and some people cried. And the reason why they gasped and, and they cried was because he looked so normal. He, looked, he didn't look like a monster, an evil monster. No, he was this short, bespeckled guy, kind of nerdy looking. And, and in fact, when, when uh, Hannah Arendt talked about uh, him, he came across as just a boring, normal guy. And people hated her portrayal of him, even though it was true, 
because they wanted evil to be out there to be ugly. But what what her portrayal of Eichmann showed was that evil is quite boring. She called the book the banality of evil. And it helped people see that evil is not something out there. But actually, in our hearts, we have the tendency to do evil things. Adolf Eichmann was just someone who wanted to be recognized. He wanted to be a, a person that people looked up to. He wanted to be successful. And look what happened. But when you think about that, who, who of us wants to be recognized and successful? Who wants, who, who wants uh, a claim? So many of us do. And yet the evil in our hearts will take us to a certain place, potentially. The line dividing good and evil runs in my human heart and yours too. And so when we hear this judgment, what we shouldn't do, uh, the judgment that God brought on the Canaanites is to go, well, well I'm glad I'm not like them. No, the, the point is to go, no, I'm actually like them. And I need to see where the evil is in my heart. And, and the reason why we can do this is because of Jesus. See, when you know you're loved and, and forgiven completely, what you can what you can do is be totally honest with those people around you and be honest with yourself because you realize that even if your heart is blacker than you could ever imagine, you know that God will still love you and will still forgive you. And so as Christians, we are people who first and foremost will admit that we need to change. The second thing about God bringing judgment on the Jerichoites and, uh, and the rest of Canaan is that he is a God who deals with injustice and evil. And that is a good thing. That is a fantastic thing. Yes, he is a loving God. He's, he's the God who is described in the New Testament as our loving Heavenly Father. But all the way through the Old Testament, and I think even in the New Testament in Revelation 19, God is described as a warrior. And that's why we've called our, our series God is a warrior, because that's the way he, he's pictured in the book of Joshua. And so how, how are we meant to kind of reconcile the God of love and the God who is a warrior? Well, it's a bit like a movie, one of my favorite movies. Now, I want you to go to your chat and see. Uh, I'm going to read out a very uh, significant quote from this movie, and I want people to see if they can type into the chat and, and tell me what this movie is. Here's the quote. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have the money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. Now, Bobby's got it, Vicky's got it, and, you know, there's a bunch of people, and it's from Taken, right? If you haven't seen Taken, it's a fantastic movie. It's a fun movie if you like action movies. And, and it has 
uh, Liam Neeson, who plays like an ex-army guy, uh, who's kind of a, a normal father on one level. His name's Brian Mills, which they gave him the name Brian Mills to, to say, this is, he is so average. He, he's a loving father. And yet, and yet, when his daughter, who he loves, goes missing, the warrior side comes out. And he, he unleashes, unleashes anger and violence to protect the one he loves. He is a loving father who out of his love for his child becomes a warrior. The God of the Bible is a loving father who for the love of his children and the love of his own name and the hatred of evil will become a warrior sometimes. And that is really significant because some of us have had terrible things done to us. And we are wondering whether God actually will do anything. Yes, he will. One day he will bring judgment and justice out of his great fatherly love for you he will become a warrior that judges and finally here's the last implication of the severity of god and that is god saves the tragedy of jericho i think is not just the killing of these people the tragedy of Jericho is that it didn't repent. If you think of Jonah, in, uh, the book of Jonah, Nineveh, the, the, Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches probably the worst sermon ever. And guess what? Everyone repents in sackcloth and ashes. If they only repented, if they only heard the word of God, if they only responded to the um, what God did, just as Rahab and her family did, they would have been saved. That's the tragedy that God saves. And yet there's a sense in which their hard hearts didn't want that. They didn't want to bow the knee to Yahweh, the God who rules all creation. But God is a God that saves. And if you and I were in Jericho in that time, Unless, unless we repented and put our trust in God, we too would have been killed. And yet you and I through Jesus have been saved by something that's far worse than Jericho. You have been saved from eternal condemnation. If you trust in Jesus, that's what you've been saved. You have been saved by the judgment of God. And that's, a, that's an amazing thing. Imagine Rahab, if you are Rahab and her family, that, that you have been saved not only from that life of prostitution, but you've been saved from the, the side of the sword, that you have been saved and now you are part of the people of God. How much thankfulness would be in her heart for the rest of her days? How much joy would there be? I, I, I want to challenge you. Do you. Have you got the the concept that God has saved you from the worst judgment imaginable. And he did that, not because you are great, but because he is. 
He did that out of his great love for you. So can I ask you, where is your joy? If you have been saved like this, where is your joy and where is your gratitude and thankfulness? One of the things that I, I've been reading this week, how to survive um, how to survive lockdown, because that's one of the things that we want. Everyone has said, be thankful, be full of gratitude. So maybe if you're struggling with, with, with lockdown at the moment, maybe the first thing that you need to do is be thankful for what God has done for you in saving you in Jesus. Yes, God is severe, but he's been kind to us in Jesus. And we should be eternally thankful and grateful. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who is both severe and kind. Thank you that you've shown us that kindness in the Lord Jesus. And thank you that that, that severity means that, that justice will be done one day. Lord, I, I pray for those of us who are still struggling with these, these ideas in this passage. Lord, help us to struggle in a way that tries to find the truth of the truth of who you are in it. And Lord, I pray that we would we will be changed. We will be changed because of your grace. We will be full of thanksgiving for it. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,